That's right, getting it done before May is through. VegCast. Coming at you with VegCast 82. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, it is another full menu of vegetarian podcastery coming your way. And uh, it is late in the month. We're just going to have the one podcast for May, but we will be following up with three podcasts in June to balance that out. And this time around, uh, the full menu, which is, as always, fuller than usual, uh, will include a talk with Carol Adams, the author of Sexual Politics of Meat, on the occasion of the 20th anniversary edition being issued by Continuum. And we will talk with Carol about the impact that the book has had, what uh, caused her to write it, and uh, general uh, sexual politics of meat issues. Uh, We will follow that up uh, later on in the podcast uh, with some commentary, but we also will have a sexual politics of meat song from none other than Nellie Mackay. That's going to be coming up. Also, a science fact, as usual. This one is about uh, another uh, criterion for human supremacy that seems to have fallen with the uh, location of a certain animal structure. So, all this is coming up on VegCast 82. I invite you to sit back. Relax and crank up that MP3 player as we deliver this edition of Okay, first and foremost in our full menu of items uh, to talk about in this podcast, I want to make an announcement. This podcast is brought to you by LightLife makers of smart dogs smart ground and more visit them at lightlife.com veggie goodness for you and the planet that's right light life is now sponsoring vegcast we would like to welcome them aboard and as always i only accept sponsorships from products that i personally enjoy myself so that i can say to you without hesitation that their products are good good eating and uh, especially the gimme lean i enjoy that in a variety of dishes and we appreciate their sponsorship but let's turn now to our featured guest carol Adams. Uh, Before we launch into the interview segment, I should just point out that my personal story, I happen to uh, become a feminist in the course of uh, my college life, and it was the experience of uh, encountering feminism and dealing with this concept that uh, the world as I knew it was actually uh, less fair than I had been led to believe uh, and that I was actually in a privileged position that I had not noticed. It was that realization that I believe led directly to my becoming a vegetarian a couple of years after that. And so when I saw the original edition of uh, Sexual Politics of Meat come out, I was excited by that. And, uh, of course, Carol Adams has done many remarkable things since then, But uh, with Sexual Politics of Meat, she certainly made her mark on our culture. And so we will go without further ado to talk with Carol Adams. 
Okay, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to welcome back Carol Adams, the author of The Sexual Politics of Meat, which has just been issued in a 20th anniversary edition. Carol, welcome back to VegCast. Thanks, Vance. It's my pleasure to be back on. Well, thank you for, for coming on. And uh, we're kind of celebrating the original release of The Sexual Politics of Meat as well as this new edition. So let's first uh, just go back in time to uh, to 19, well, probably the late 80s when you were originally conceiving of this. And I was wondering what were the circumstances that made you say, you know, somebody's got to write a book about the sexual politics of meat. <laughs> well, thanks for the question, but... Now, how long do I have to give the answer? Well, as long as you need. I don't have a very good sound bite for that. I, I actually had the original idea back in 1974. So it's kind of been my life work at this point, and I never knew it would be. But in any case, I moved to Boston to live in Cambridge to study with Mary Daly became a vegetarian, was living in a feminist vegetarian house, was reading all this wonderful stuff, reading uh, this new book that had come out, Notable American Women, a three-volume um, biographical compendium. And I was noting each person who they said was a vegetarian. Meanwhile, I was reading Andrea Dworkin, reading theories about how patriarchy originated, reading not feminist novels, and one day in October, I was walking towards Harvard Square, and suddenly everything sort of clicked in place. It, I've never gambled, but it, it seems to me it would be like when the three apples all show up at the same time when you're doing, what is it, slot machines or right. something. And I sort of felt like I levitated 10 feet off the ground. It was just something deeply, deeply felt that there was a connection between feminism and vegetarianism, feminism, and veganism, as we would talk about it now, and that meat-eating was part of a patriarchal world. Well, now, let me, uh, since you mentioned uh, feminism and vegetarianism and then kind of corrected it to feminism and veganism, uh, in terms of your vegetarianism, were you at the point that you originally conceived that uh, vegan yet, or were you still in transition then? Because I, I don't remember when I read it getting a strong vegan message, although looking back at it, the aspects of animal exploitation that distinguish veganism from vegetarianism are, are very, uh, you know, very solidly rooted in a, a patriarchal control of the, you know, the reproductive cycle. So I'm, how, how did that all evolve in your thinking? Well, I, I tried to become vegan in 75, 76, and I was vegan for a while then. There wasn't a lot of support, and I moved out of Cambridge. I was living in a rural area, and I um, did not succeed at being vegan uh, completely at that time. But as I continued to work, when I when I wrote the first I wrote the first article as a uh, a paper for Mary Daly, and then immediately it got published in a anthology of feminist lesbian writings, and then I just realized I needed to do it as a book, but it took me so long to find out what it was I needed to say and how to say it, and then what was the theoretical underpinning that brought it all together. I, I did not want to write a book that said, well, there's this connection and there's this connection, and you see there's this, and when you've got a world where 
virility is equated with meat eating, and meat eating is, is deems one virile. I I wanted some strong theoretical rubric for that, which eluded me till 1988. So during the 80s, as I continued to gather evidence, gather examples, I was also uh, exploring cooking and living as a vegan. And I think the explicit way sexual politics of meat makes the point you were talking about was coining the term feminized protein. I talk about animalized protein, that the protein exists pre-exists the animal. And then what people do is they, the, the vegetable protein is fed to the animal and then is animalized. That's a 19th century term. Right. So I coined the term feminized protein to show that that's what we're doing with dairy and eggs. And it was at that same time that it was clear to me I could not benefit from or live uh, based on oppressing and uh, female animals, that that just was inconsistent. Right. And okay. so I, I kept the word vegetarian because I like the word vegetarian. I felt that the historic analysis of vegetarianism and, and the historic roots of vegetarianism were important to lift up. And also I feel that but because we have this term ovo-lacto-vegetarian, it's mm-hmm. kind of showing that when you eat deg- e- eggs or dairy, you actually have to have some sort of prefix to vegetarianism, that the vegetarianism I conceive of would never benefit in any way from factory farms. You're marking it. It's, I mean, vegetarian unmarked is one thing, but then right. uh, it's, it's a whole different phenomenon when you're marking it as ovo-lacto. So I think once you've marked it as feminist vegetarian, you're marking it as someone who doesn't eat feminized protein. Okay. But one of the things I do in the 20th anniversary edition is I make the explicit vegan statement. I add in Chapter 3 where I talk about the concept of new naming and the struggle of, of naming things according to what our vision of the world is, and one of those new names would be vegan. Well, now that was my next question coming, you know, from... Its origin uh, to today, I was going to just try to nail down how how much is different. And you, I wasn't even sure if you had gone back in to the original text uh, to update things or, or add things. But it sounds like you have. Did you like go all the way through and do a thorough re-edit of it, or, or how different is the 20th anniversary edition? Well, I sat down and I read the whole thing through, which I don't think I did for the 10th anniversary edition. So for the first time in 20 years, I read it. And what I was trying to do was see if anything sounded sort of off-key at this point. But I, in reading it, I also knew that I hear from so many people about how the book changed their lives. And I, I, I say, well, well, what was it? Because I thought... I don't want to touch or change the part that has changed someone's life. I don't want to in any way go in and sort of fragment the book away from its existence so that it becomes something different than what I I originally wrote it to be and which clearly is touching people's lives. So I ended up really respecting the text, which is, of course, one of the arguments I make in the book, which is that vegans and vegetarians are very literal people, and we respect the text. We respect animals' lives, and we respect 
and don't want edited text. So I sort of respected my own text. I added a 20th anniversary preface. Nellie Mackay has written a foreword. I did a 20th anniversary bibliography. I updated a few footnotes, and we inserted eight pages of illustrations that have come out since my uh, the pornography of meat in the early 21st century, just showing the contemporary configuration of the sexual politics of meat, women as meat, animals as shown as uh, feminized and sexualized, the equation of meat-eating and virility. Uh, so all of those aspects, I felt those eight pages were ways of saying this is still a problem. Right. Well, that was another question I was going to ask was whether you'd seen uh, really any any progress in the culture or any evolution in the culture in terms of the way, you know, women and exploited animals are, are equated or uh, obviously, I guess it, we can't say it's it's gotten much better. Has it gotten worse? Has, has the actual uh, manner of depiction changed or have you noticed any trends like that? I think it's gotten worse, actually. Really? I think I, I think there's two reasons for that, feminism and veganism, that uh, if the sexual politics of meat is working at a subliminal and symbolic level to recreate patriarchal attitudes at the level of, of who you're eating, then when feminism or veganism are strong, as feminism was really, especially in the 80s and early 90s, and as veganism has become, then... Uh, how does the dominant culture respond? It's going to respond by uh, recapitulating or recreating sexual politics of meat attitudes. Um, so increase in steakhouses, which are seen as gentlemen's place. Uh, in fact, the New York Times just had a review of, uh, in their weekend review, it was sort of fascinating, where they say, Sex business backs the party animal. So it's right after the Republican Party had turned out to have some of their lead uh, givers at a, a, a strip club. And they said um, how much the strip club just seemed like, our, oh, our clubs are set up with the same decorations and customer service as any major steakhouse. So yeah. Yeah. that the creation of the climate to affirm the traditional dominant male personality is the same. And it seems as though that need to reassure the dominant male who has objects in, in terms of sexualized women and, and animals, big, big bloody steaks to be eaten, it's the same environment. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just ask, when I first saw the book and, and started reading it, it was uh, like a godsend because I was... Uh, both, I was a feminist before I was a vegetarian, and feminism kind of led me to vegetarianism. But I was a little confused in reading it whether whether you were a vegetarian trying to convince feminists to go vegetarian or a feminist convincing, convincing vegetarians that they should be feminist. And I'm just wondering, obviously, you were making the case that there's already uh, this strong overlap in the concerns of both, but I'm wondering in your experience of, of different readers coming at this from those two major constituencies, which one uh, you find it, it takes more work to actually persuade them <laughs> of that there is overlap that they should be concerned with? Well, in different ways, both groups are difficult. On the other hand, in different ways, both groups experience a certain 
aha moment. So um, first, I think once I realized the connection, I was trying to write a book that, that did not say, you ought to become this. You need to become this. I tried to create a book that invited people into a different way of conceptualizing and thinking about the world. And if you thought in that different way, then it was inevitable that you would decide you needed to do certain things. So I really tried not to be strident or, or uh, I mean, I guess it's polemical, but not, not really saying you must do this. However, I was told immediately that feminists were refusing to buy it because they were afraid they'd have to become vegetarian. So <laughs> Once they read it, <laughs> they would have no choice. Well, this isn't fair. Feminist theory is supposed to be engaged with. It, it's funny to have a book that's not engaged with simply because it might be more persuasive. Um, I hear from a lot of vegetarians and animal activists that what the book did is by providing and situ well by situating the whole issue around the eating of animals within a cultural uh, critique that showed that what we're doing to animals isn't just parallel to what we've done to women or uh, the oppressions we've created against people who get lowered by being seen as animal-like, but that they were interconnected. And so vegans and vegetarians who wanted to have a, to articulate that Animal rights is a social justice movement that intersects with the concerns and claims of other social justice movements suddenly had a book that provided that argument. Right. And I think that that was really liberating. So I've heard from vegans and vegetarians who, who became feminist by reading the book, and then I've heard from vegan vegetarians who already were concerned about social justice but now had a way to put that into... Uh, a theoretical argument. Great. I've also heard from feminists who said, I read your book and I had to become vegan. So in that, in that sense, it's, it's done the kind of cultural work that I hoped it would do, which is that I trusted the readers. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let me just ask about, in terms of the, the way the culture has evolved, um, looking not just at the way that the industry of meat-eating and animal protein uh, consumption and exploitation is, is presented, but also within vegetarian activism. You didn't um, do much with this in the sexual politics of meat itself, but in the pornography of meat, you did uh, start to uh, hammer at PETA for some of their sexist uh, campaigns. And you know, they, they persist with that, and we'll leave that uh, off to the side for now. But there's also, you know, within the past decade, there's been uh, things like the Skinny Bitch books, and we, we had uh, Rory Friedman on here uh, once and, and kind of got into that whole question of whether, whether you know, you can really legitimately turn the tables on using that same kind of expression uh, to... To get across this message, or whether there's something just fundamentally uh, at odds that you, that, that you can. I'm wondering. I, I don't want you to necessarily have to condemn anybody or condone anything. But what is what? What's your take on whether you know somewhat sexist attitudes or stereotypes or things can somehow be twisted or used ironically or otherwise employed? 
to uh, to get across a, a positive message for feminism and or vegetarianism? Well, maybe I can answer that by by quoting the preface to the 20th anniversary edition. Okay. Because I um, in that I I talk about uh, and include a a a, a great philosopher. Um, friend, Matthew Calarco, who's an expert on continental philosophy, and, and I asked him to talk about this idea that's from Derrida, uh, which was called carnophalogocentrism. I know it's a long word, but he said it's an attempt to name the primary social, linguistic, and material practices that go into becoming and remaining a genuine subject within the West. And that what Derrida did was he suggested that in order to be recognized as a full subject, one must be a meat-eater a man, and an authoritative speaking self. So what Derrida was saying is he's coining this term, the carnophalogocentric subject, as, as the dominant subject of Western culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, here in the States, along comes the sexual politics of meat that's talking about the same thing, the construction of this subject. And so what I say now in the 20th is, with Derrida and Calarco's help, we can comprehend the problem when animal rights organizations choose to use pornographic ads to reach meat eaters or any um, subsidiary activity that reinforces the idea that you have to somehow um, position male meat eaters differently or position female vegetarians differently, like this whole thing about whether male vegans should be called vegans and meat is for pussies or something, this campaign. Anyway, what they're all doing, all of those are speaking to the male subject and assume he basically cannot change. We who object to the sexual politics of meat imagine something better. We imagine that the male subject truly can change. So that's how I would position it. I feel that any time we give in to the basic structure of the sexual politics of meat, we're participating in the culture we're trying to change, and we, we, we can't change it from within. Okay. We can't change it simply by saying to men, oh, oh, okay. Just give up meat eating. You can still have women as objects. Right. It's okay to still structure your life around objects. Just eliminate the animals. I don't think it works. Okay. And the same way, I mean, I, I understand and I, I think the, um, the impulse uh, uh, of, of Rory's work is, is important, but I think anything that reinforces the idea of a certain female body form and a certain way of, of what we're supposed to be about and that then uses a word from speciesism, to sort of reclaim or resituate that, I think that's going to have problems too. I, it's are we participating? In, I mean, my basic question always will be: Are we participating in the sexual politics of meat, or are we rejecting it? And that when we reject it, it requires activism that's engaged and interconnected. Okay. Well, now uh, we've uh, kind of gone over our time here, but uh, I just before you go, you've uh, obviously already made your mark on uh, the culture just with the the initial release of this book, and we're uh, looking back on that as well as celebrating the 20th anniversary edition. You've done other books. We originally had you on VegCast uh, to talk about uh, Living Among Meat Eaters, um, and you, you've had a, a couple of other books since then even. So I'm just wondering, uh, do you feel like you've you've pretty much 
covered all the bases now? You covered all the topics you need to, or is there something else that's making you know, say, no, i got to get out there and uh, address this? Well, I, I, I'd say that the first month after the sexual politics of me came out 20 years ago, I thought, okay, I'm done. I, you know, I, I, I've finished. I, I, I've covered it all. And, of course, then immediately people started sending me images, which they've done for 20 years. And as I respond to the images, I continue to change the sexual politics of meat slideshow to incorporate what I see happening. And I then have to evolve my theory uh, so that it's staying, keeping pace. I think I'm going to do some work around Derrida. I might. Uh, I've, I've ended up having some very interesting interviews recently, and one is around art that uses animals. I want to work on that some more. I, I, I keep thinking I'm done, but it turns out my brain has decided I'm not done, and my passion about this just propels me forward, and I discovered there is so much more to say. Great. Well, we'll look forward to hearing you say it. And that... Vance, thank you very much. I'd just like to tell people that my website is caroljadams.com, and we're going to be posting an eight-minute video about the sexual politics of meat uh, any day now. And I hope people will go to the website and learn more about the book and, and these ideas. Great. I appreciate your, your interest in them and your support of them. Sure, and we'll definitely have that link in our show notes. And uh, for anyone who hasn't been paying close enough attention, that is The Sexual Politics of Meat. It's from Continuum. Uh, books and Carol one last time thanks for being on VegCast thank you Vance <laughs> feminists don't have a sense of humor feminists just want to be alone feminists spread vicious lies and rumor they have a tumor on their funny bone they say Child molestation isn't funny Rape and degradation's just a crime Lighten up, ladies Rampant prostitution, sex for money What's wrong with that? Can't these chicks do anything but whine? Dance break message.
That is, of course, Nellie Mackay with Mother of Pearl, uh, also colloquially known as Feminists Don't Have a Sense of Humor. And I should point out uh, this song is a little bit idiosyncratic uh, for Nellie Mackay. Her usual idiom is more effusive and melodic and lush orchestration, uh, great piano work, so forth. So if you're not familiar with her, uh, you should definitely check out the rest of her work. But I had to choose that song when I was asked uh, which of hers I wanted permission to play um, because it just has so much to do with what we're talking about here today. And there will be more to say on that. But first, we are going to turn to the science. Our science fact for VegCast 82 is world's biggest beaver dam discovered in northern Canada. Uh, This is not exactly a a peer-reviewed scientific study, but it is scientific news of some import. So we're going to look at that import. Let's read the story. A Canadian ecologist has discovered the world's largest beaver dam in a remote area of northern Alberta, an animal-made structure so large it is visible from space. Researcher Jean T. said Wednesday he used satellite imagery and Google Earth software to locate the dam, which is about 2,800 feet long, on the southern edge of Wood Buffalo National Park. Of course, 2,800 feet is uh, a little over a, a half a mile long. First discovered in October 2007, the gigantic dam is located in a virtually inaccessible part of the park uh, south of Lac Claire, in case you know where that is, northeast of Fort McMurray. Construction of the dam likely started in the mid-1970s, said T, who made his discovery quite by accident while tracking a melting permafrost in Canada's far north. Several generations of beavers worked on it, and it's still growing, he told AFP in Ottawa. T said he recently identified two smaller dams sprouting at either side of the main dam. In 10 years, all three structures could merge into a mega dam, measuring just short of a kilometer in length. A kilometer is about around two-thirds of a mile. Uh, The region is flat, so the beavers would have had to build a massive structure to stem wetland water flows, T said, noting that the dam was visible in NASA satellite imagery from the 1990s. T said he also found evidence that beavers were repopulating old habitats after being hunted extensively for pelts in past centuries. They're invading their old territories in a remarkable way in Canada, he said. I found huge dams throughout Canada and beaver colonies with up to 100 of them in a square kilometer. They're re-engineering the landscape, he said. And uh, I don't know that I need to comment too much on this in case the uh, lessons to be drawn from this are not obvious, but uh, we have... In this case, animals re-engineering the landscape to an extent that they have created a structure that is visible from space. Uh, so let's just recall that this is yet another one of those distinctions that humans make between themselves and non-human animals 
uh, as we're finding out more and more about animal consciousness and ways that animals may actually be superior to humans in uh, certain attributes and certain abilities. We've held on to this handful of uh, things that we can do that animals can't do or don't do. And one of those, of course, is that we have overrun the entire landscape of the globe with our structures and our uh, interstate highways, our buildings, all of these things that re-engineer the landscape uh, on a massive scale uh, in a way that, of course, animals can't do. Well, apparently, now we have to give that one up as well. And uh, the lesson, obviously, is that maybe we should stop saying that humans are better than animals because when uh, we don't actually have enough data to say whether that cause is, is valid, uh, in this case, this was a structure that has been uh, being built by successive generations of beavers since the 1970s. Uh, so this is something where it was a project that wasn't just undertaken by a few uh, beavers, but actually was somehow conveyed that they needed to keep working on this uh, over different lifetimes, um, and yet we were completely unaware of it because it was in an area that was remote to us, but it was going on, and so uh, there may be a lot more going on that we simply haven't found out about, so it would behoove us to step back a little bit from the traditional uh, human supremacist attitude and try to take a look with open eyes at what non-human animals may actually be doing with their lives. And, uh, of course, as a given, we should stop killing them for our entertainment, which is what certain kinds of food over others uh, actually are. And we should study them and present the results of those studies in fora such as the... Science. All right, just a follow-up on some earlier issues presented by Carol Adams and Nellie McKay on the sexual politics of meat, and especially the, uh, the title, Meat is for Pussies, uh, which does, upon further research, turn out to be the title of a book. Uh, this came up on a Facebook thread uh, where someone was at an event for the book and following up on Carol saying that uh, the premise is that men can't change, so we have to uh, cater this message to their uh, sexist attitudes and presumptions and uh, rather than trying to get them to change or uh, expecting that they could be reached by some other method. And I asked whether uh, there was any evidence that the men in question could not be reached by any other method than a book using that blatantly sexist terminology. Uh, and that started a whole discussion uh, where people were defending uh, this usage and the author, whom I am not familiar with, so I have no opinion on him, his motivations, or anything else. Uh, but it was kind of funny that uh, somebody finally said, get over it, which is uh, pretty close to lighten up, ladies, as uh, Nellie Mackay has in her song. It's such a cliche uh, that I laughed out loud. I literally laughed out loud at that one. Um, and, you know, the, the joke is that uh, feminists and vegetarians both are said not to have a sense of humor because uh, we don't seem to laugh at the same 
uh, cliched jokes that uh, we're supposed to as members of mainstream society. Uh, but as Carol said when I mentioned that I was going to play uh, this song, she said uh, when people say that, uh, they, that feminists and or vegetarians don't have a sense of humor, they mean we don't have their sense of humor. And we're about done, but I would like to remind you before we go that this podcast is brought to you by Light Life. Light Life makes eating veggie deliciously easy. Light Life says join us and be Pro veggie, and that wraps it up. Okay, that is going to do it for VegCast 82. I want to thank my guest, Carol Adams. The 20th anniversary edition of Sexual Politics of Meat is just out from Continuum. And thanks to Nellie Mackay for giving us permission to play Mother of Pearl on this VegCast. Hope to uh, someday follow up with more on Nellie Mackay, certainly a very interesting uh, vegetarian artist. And, of course, I want to thank you for listening and subscribing to VegCast. You can subscribe in iTunes. We will be back very soon with three podcasts in June. Until then, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.